This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. It is mid-January. It is deep mid-winter, even in my relatively mild USDA Zone 9, Sunset Zone 8. While I'm fortunate enough to have a year-round Saturday farmer's market available to me, my own home garden is looking spare, which is as it should be this time of year, but it could be looking a little less spare while still remaining seasonally appropriate. One of my New Year's resolutions is to strive to do a little bit better on this front. After the calendar year 2016, I would like to feel a little more self-reliant. Call me crazy, I'm going to start with raised vegetable beds. Today I am joined by Elliot Coleman, esteemed plantsman, gardener, and author based in Harborside, Maine. Elliot and his gardener, writer, wife, Barbara Damrosch, were early proponents and continuing advocates for growing your own seasonally appropriate, sustainably tended food year-round, no matter where you live. Elliot is also the author of The New Organic Grower and The Winter Harvest Handbook. Today, we're going to be speaking primarily about my favorite of his books, the four-season harvest. Elliot joins us today by Skype. Welcome, Elliot. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Give us a little bit of history about your early background and the influences that led you to be a lifelong gardener, both of food and ornamentals. Well, actually, the influences started in the mountains or in uh, wild rivers or on rock cliffs. But for much of my uh, younger years, I was what I referred to as a semi-pro adventurer, and any time I could go on a mountaineering expedition or run some outrageously difficult river in a kayak or climb some uh, uh, rock face, I did it. And then long on, oh, I guess I was in my late 20s, and I was thinking there should be something more socially redeeming in my future than the next mountain. I read a book about small farming, and it made it sound like an adventure. And that was basically what led me into the farming part of it. The natural part of it, I was already uh, enamored of because I was spending so much time out in the wilderness. And did you grow up in the Northeast, Elliot? Yes, uh, I was born and brought up in New Jersey, but I spent most of my life in New England because uh, uh, I just adored it up here. Visually describe Four Season Farm for us and how you came to garden there, its location and climate and size. Give us a little visual description. Well, when you go back to the start, which was uh, October of 1968 when I first moved here, this was all wooded. Uh, uh, my uh, wife and I had very little money, and uh, a wonderful couple who'd written a, a book called Living the Good Life, Scott and Helen Nearing, who <laughs> were sort of godparents to the early uh, uh, 60s hippies. Yes. Um, I had met them, and we'd gotten to be friends, and they'd offered to sell me the back path, half of their farm, 60 acres. And so we started uh, uh, cutting down trees, uh, prying out stumps, rolling rocks into uh, uh, rock walls. And uh, now of the uh, original uh, land, we have about 14 acres cleared, and uh, uh, about uh, two and a half of those acres are in intensive vegetable production, about a half acre is under greenhouses. 
and it allows us on what was obviously to most people the most ridiculous idea they ever heard of in their life, what, you're going to have a farm here. It allows us to produce spectacular food because we know the land intimately uh, and the, the fertility that is here is mostly fertility we brought in from local resources. We're near the ocean, so we bring in a lot of uh, seaweed. Uh, there are uh, fishing industry uh, wastes available like uh, crab shells and, and so forth. And uh, there is a lot of uh, grass hay that nobody wants on many of the what used to be small farmers around here because they've all been bought up by summer people and they just want to pay someone to mow it these days. And so as far as access to organic matter and other uh, inputs for building the soil, it's been a very uh, natural, very local uh, process of creating what is now uh, as good a soil as you can find anywhere. You, you have several books the first one was really kind of aimed at market gardeners, I believe. Tell us about the journey of starting, continuing the depth of your garden work and ultimately deciding to write the first book and then the, the subsequent books from there. Well, I'm a total book nerd. I, I love books. And uh, the books in my library, and there are an awful lot of them, uh, <laughs> on agriculture I refer to as my grandparents because I didn't have grandparents in agriculture to teach me, but these old books have done that job. And I think I wanted to write a book to pay back all of these people, I mean, it was, it's fantastic. Some of the finest writing on organic agriculture was done back in the 1930s. Uh, and the, the spirit and joy with which these people were expressing the fact that, oh my gosh, look what we've been able to do. These people are lying about chemicals, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So once I'd learned a lot of this stuff, I said, okay, uh, let's see if I can't put together a book that keeps all of these wonderful old ideas and old people alive by passing it on to uh, future generations. The idea was to help the other young people at the time who wanted to get into producing food to feed their neighbors and uh, uh, give them access to all the wonderful uh, ideas that I'd been able to get from books and also from uh, visiting people. Um, Scott and Helen uh, subsidized a trip for me to uh, uh, Europe uh, to visit small farms uh, back in 1974. Mm -hmm. And that was the eye-opener of all time because European small farms in those days were just so far ahead of us in organic agriculture ideas. And that really probably made more difference than any other input uh, in addition to what I'd learned from the books. You, you were... You went on one eye-opening European trip um, in the 70s, but then you went on another one with Barbara traveling across France. Describe the logic of that journey and some of the epiphanies you had on it. Sure. Well, when we got interested in uh, experimenting with what we could do in the supposed non-farming months, uh, I refer to them as the other eight months, uh, <laughs> everything except May, June, July, and August. And it 
turned out that if we provided just a little climatic protection, no heat, just almost a, a, just a clear windbreak in a small greenhouse is basically just a clear windbreak, it was unbelievable how many hardy vegetables we could keep harvesting all winter long, even in our climate. And we obviously looked into all aspects of what was going on in the winter. We figured that we are here on the 44th parallel of latitude. And we looked at maps of the world and found out that the 44th parallel of latitude ran across southern France. So golly, here are people who are getting the same amount of sun in the winter because the parallel of latitude determines that. And yet they had a much milder climate. So we were curious to see what they were doing because we were having to put up uh, simple greenhouses to uh, make our climate mild enough to duplicate what they could do with the Gulf Stream. And so we went, uh, drove south of Paris to the French uh, coast and tucked our toes into the ocean where we figured the 44th parallel came across and then uh, headed uh, uh, east uh, across France, more or less following the, the 44th, uh, uh, visiting farms of that friends had told us about or just stopping whenever we saw a beautiful community garden and uh, wandering in and, and talking to the gardeners. And they were fascinated that a couple of Americans actually spoke enough French to uh, make themselves understood. And this was just fantastic. But it was so amusing for us. We'd say, well, you know, is there enough sunlight in uh, in January to be growing this stuff? And they say, oh, yeah, no, there's plenty of sunlight. The problem, they would say, is the extreme cold. Well, what to them was extreme cold was to us a mild day in May uh, <laughs> because uh, the areas we were in, the average January temperature was about 42 or 3 degrees, whereas where we live, the average January temperature is about 19 or 20 degrees. But it was just – there was so much fun and, of course, gardeners are – Gardeners like other gardeners. And so even though people will tell you, oh, the French taxi drivers are unpleasant. Well, French gardeners, we had the most wonderful time talking with them and exchanging ideas and even sitting around uh, on the edge of their garden drinking a glass of wine. <laughs> and what, what would you say were some of the lessons you brought home from that journey? Yeah, that uh, we learned a lot about the varieties uh, they were growing. And, uh, you know, everybody in the U.S. thinks that the whole idea of mixed salads, mescaline salads, came from uh, uh, France. And it did, but from uh, a, only a certain area of France. And so I remember the first community garden we were in, we we're attacking this delightful old French gentleman with a beret. And uh, we said, well, we don't see any uh, mescaline salad growing in your garden. And it was great. He said, but it is not my traditional salad. And for him, his traditional salad was endive and escarole and uh, uh, some mush. And that was fascinating because then we realized there's a whole range of crops that uh, uh, we hadn't heard about as uh, superior winter crops because only a certain part of the French dietary choices had made it across the Atlantic. So every time we met a new gardener, just new ideas, new thoughts uh, – about as much fun a trip as we've ever taken. 
the Four Season Harvest is is not a new book. Its first edition was published in 1992, and I was first gardening with it when I was living on the 47th parallel. What I didn't really understand until I was working with your book was this importance of where you are on the latitude spectrum and how important those numbers of daylight hours are. Describe for listeners who may not be familiar with this, the the difference between extending the growing season and extending the harvest. Right. Well, it was fascinating, uh, Jennifer, when I was first writing Four Season Harvest. I don't think it was until I decided what the title should be that I truly understood what we were doing. Because after you get down to the 10-hour day, uh, as the days shorten in the fall, our days get uh, to 10 hours and then shorter around the 5th of November and don't get back above the 10-hour day until about the 5th of February. But once you get down to days that short, growth basically just slows down. And what we learned was in order to have production during the winter, we had to be establishing the plants back before the 10-hour day so they had a good root system. And something like spinach, every time you went and cut a leaf, another leaf would come up. And what that required was that we gave them enough protection that they weren't frozen solid all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, our protection at the start was just a single a layer of plastic on a simple hoop house. Mm -hmm. And that single layer here on the East Coast uh, protects the area under it enough to basically move you to a climate 500 miles to the south. And so when I talk about this, I'm always joking about it. And I say, when I walk up to the greenhouse, I'm in Maine. When I uh, walk into the greenhouse, I'm 500 miles to the south in New Jersey. And at that point, I pause and I say, a place you only want to go metaphorically. <laughs> and people think that's a great joke, and it is. And since I grew up there, I'm allowed to say that. And then I say, I have a second layer of plastic inside the greenhouse held a foot above the ground by wire wickets. When I reach my hand under that layer, I'm another 500 miles to the south, and basically my plants are in Georgia for the winter. This is not done with putting in any heat. It's just that double layer of protection makes it uh, possible to grow all of the hardy crops all winter long. There are obviously no uh, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, sweet corn, cucumbers, et cetera, under, under there because they would freeze and die. But there are so many cold hardy vegetables. Uh, so we're harvesting uh, carrots all winter. We're harvesting spinach all winter, leeks. Uh, any of the hardy Asian greens do very well in, in this thing. Uh, scallions. Uh, it's just amazing what the two layers of protection do to modify the climate. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. It's January, and for many of us, our gardens are sleeping and dreaming of summer. But today I'm joined by Elliot Coleman, author of the classic title, The Four Season Harvest, a book and mindset lived out on the farm 
known as Four Season Farm, in Harborside, Maine, where Elliot and his gardener-writer wife, Barbara Damrosh, make their garden lives. They were early proponents and are continuing advocates for growing your own seasonally appropriate, sustainably tended food year-round. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. This week we're speaking with Elliot Coleman, author of the classic title, The Four Season Harvest. We're just back after a break to hear more about the means and ways of harvesting seasonally appropriate produce from your garden year-round, no matter what your gardening zone. Welcome back. The Four Season Harvest has very explicit instructions and uh, sort of data tables and figures on not only how to construct a variety of protective environments from a cold frame to a simple hoop house to a double layer protection system that you're just describing, um, but also information on how to prepare the soil, how to site the different temperatures that you'll get at day and at nighttime based on the exterior temperature that correlate to everything you're just describing. I think it's an important point that you just make about the goal was not to create the most extravagant heated glass house to get unusual plants out of season. The idea was to give enough protection to get seasonally appropriate vegetables. Describe what you are harvesting in your protected environments right now and tell us when you seeded those originally. A great deal of our unheated covered space now is in spinach uh, because there's amazing demand for it in the winter because it tastes so much sweeter when it grows in the cold, even the extreme cold uh, mm -hmm. where we live. And so the spinach we're harvesting now, which we will harvest right on through to the end of March from the same plants, was planted uh, sometime in the middle of September, around the 15th to the 20th here in our climate. Uh, we are harvesting uh, the most beautiful leeks imaginable that we actually put in the ground back in May. And here is another little trick that makes this all happen. Uh, if we can cover leeks with a greenhouse, uh, they are very hardy themselves, so drape a, a that inner layer over them and we can harvest them all winter. But there's no way I could afford to let them sit in a greenhouse all summer, beside the fact it would be too hot for them, I would rather use that greenhouse space to grow uh, tomatoes or peppers or eggplants or something that would be bringing in summer income. So we have created the ability to move greenhouses. Mm -hmm. So the same greenhouse that today is uh, covering a, a huge uh, field of leeks. In fact, I was just harvesting them earlier this morning, uh, was uh, covering other crops in the summer and other crops in the fall because it's possible to jack it up, put wheels on it, and move it over the areas where we want it when we want it there. Continuous greenhouse growing, uh, people can have problems with the buildup of pests and diseases and, and also excess nutrients in the soil because it isn't being uh, uh, flushed uh, by uh, rain and everything. And of course, there's no problem with that because when the ground isn't under the greenhouse, it's out getting uh, rained and sunned on and uh, everything is, is being purified as uh, nature naturally does. 
And one of the great things about the book as well for me is a couple of points you make in terms of making sure that you enjoy the space that you're in, whether it's a cold frame or a hoop house, and making sure that it's sited so that it is easily accessible, so that you are easily able to get to it and you enjoy it once you're there. And finally, the forgivingness of being in a mindset where you are vegetable and food growing all year round. It's not this one shot summer garden and you're you're done. You either did well or you did badly and you get to start again next year. There is this constant cycle and so it's a little more forgiving. Oh yeah, no, that's the best part of it. A lot of people have difficulty uh, with, uh, for example, spinach in the spring because uh, the spring suddenly heats up too quickly and it's summer and it's too hot. That's fine. You're going to get another chance in the fall. Yeah, this is a wonderful way. If you like to eat, you're going to be eating so much better than you could ever imagine. You have been on the farm for closing in on 50 years. And one of the things, again, that's amazing to me about the Four Season Harvest is how timeless it is that there are, I guess, you know, any number of books that I could buy that are are newer. But Everything I needed for even my climate and my latitude is in the Four Season Harvest. Are there recent lessons that you've learned? Have Has your gardening changed over that 50-year period or from the original publication of Four Season Harvest, Elliot? Well, one of the ideas that has fascinated me recently, and there are a number of books on this going back to the uh, uh, early uh, 1900s, and in the 1940s, is how land in sod uh, builds up fertility. And basically, it's photosynthesis, and the plants grow, and the roots, and everything. And especially if that uh, land is grazed by uh, uh, animals, uh, we've found that we can till up uh, uh, pasture, uh, that has been grazing animals for four years and get a couple of years of free fertility off of it, just sort of cashing in what Mother Nature has been uh, putting in that bank account. Mm-hmm. And there is a vigor to the soil when it's coming out of sod into vegetables that is not there if it has been in vegetables year after year, no matter how much compost you're using. So this has been fascinating from the point of view of figuring out other things that are going on in the soil. Uh, we, are, we have a lot of uh, extensive crop rotations, but rotating back through sod seems to make an enormous difference. You could just add sod for a little bit of lawn as part of your rotation if you had. Absolutely. <laughs> right? yeah. yeah. That is fascinating. I did not know that. You are a dedicated organic gardener. You always have been. Again, one of the lovely things about this book is your thorough and thoughtful approach to the embodied energy and decision-making in every choice you made from the plastic over the tops of greenhouses to, to other elements. You were also an early uh, proponent of the organic movement and an advisor to the development of the organic food industry. As you look forward, what are your greatest hopes for the future of your farm and the sustainable food and agriculture movement at this point? Well, the wonderful thing about organic farming, as all of us old hippies got into it 50 years ago, (laughs) 
is I think the conventional agriculture would have loved to have stopped us and made us uh, uh, quiet down. But we were unstoppable because we needed nothing. I mean, you can organic garden, organic farm with nothing but a shovel, a hoe, and some seeds. Mm -hmm. And that's because you learn to understand all the processes of the natural world that are keeping the planet going. And so uh, the idea for me is for us to learn in other aspects of our association with the planet how to pay attention to the ways in which we can nurture what the planet already wants to do to fulfill our needs rather than having to go and uh, and think we're going to kick it around or make it uh, uh, jump uh, to our tune. No, it has a wonderful tune of its own, and we need to learn uh, how to dance uh, to that music. <laughs> I like that image. Let's end with your recommendations. If you had three techniques you'd like to see every home gardener employ, what would those be? Well, obviously, uh, don't waste any organic matter by putting it in the trash and sending it off somewhere. Just make a little area for compost in the corner of the yard. And this isn't uh, complicated at all. You know, they're the bumper stickers that say compost happens. And it really does. Uh, organic matter is just going to break down into its component parts and it's going to make the soil uh, fertile wherever you uh, uh, are able to spread it. Um, the other thing, and uh, I've designed a number of hoes that are in different uh, tool catalogs, is I encourage people to find uh, tools that they are comfortable with. And very often you'll see organic gardens and people are trying hard, but they just never got enough on top of the weeds to, to keep uh, the garden as productive as it could be. And so some of the hoes I've designed are perfectly uh, uh, angled for you to stand up straight with your back straight and use them. And it's very much like a, a dance in your garden. And so uh, rather than looking upon anything in the garden as a chore, find a tool that you enjoy using that will make it pleasant for you. And you will find that uh, all of those chores disappear and you're actually going to look forward to getting home from work and going out there and uh, uh, making sure there's uh, extra good food on the table. Elliot Coleman, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Jennifer. It's been my pleasure. Elliot Coleman is an esteemed plantsman, gardener, and author based in Harborside, Maine. He is the author of The Four Season Harvest, available from Chelsea Green Publishing. His wife, Barbara Damrosh, is a regular garden contributor to The Washington Post. They were early proponents and continuing advocates for growing your own seasonally appropriate, sustainably tended food year-round, no matter where you live. Elliot is also the author of The New Organic Grower and The Winter Harvest Handbook. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Sarah Bohannon. 
For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit mynspr.org. For more information, including many photos of Four Season Farm, please visit jewelgarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram or Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.